it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative that there's... Fake news is about to get a lot scarier and a lot more difficult to and identify. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You know I that. I know, but you got to have data to back Let me just tell you. Welcome to Scientifica Radio. I'm Emma. And I'm Rakib. The search for truth amid a sea of misinformation has become a daily struggle, unfolding like a Shakespearean drama. Or comedy. Or comedy on the main media stage. And this has many people in the science community very worried. The communication of science has always had problems with quackery. But here's the rub. How do we sort out the liars? Well... That's what we want to know. Mad-Eye Moody Imposter from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, with the rise of fake news on one side and questionable science on the other, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the information overload, especially when it's hard to know which information to trust. On today's episode, we talked to Dr. Ivan Aransky, distinguished writer in residence at NYU Journalism Institute, columnist for the Boston Globe's Stat News, and co-founder of Retraction Watch, a highly acclaimed watchdog blog where they monitor academic papers that have been retracted from journals and their discredited authors. Dr. Aransky recently spoke to a packed room of researchers and students at an Academic Integrity Day hosted by the Skillsets team of McGill University. We caught up with him to chat about his thoughts on science reporting in the current political climate, present-day academic fraud, and the future of Retraction Watch. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Um, so our first question for you is about uh, fake news and mm -hmm. what's been going on uh, in, well, in recent times in the world that we're living in now. Uh, so what are your main concerns in regards to reliable reporting of science um, in the current climate? So we've had issues with reporting of science for a long time and certainly I, I think it's it could very well get worse because scientific journalism is getting swept up in this sort of alternative facts and, and fake news uh, sort of milieu that we're, that we're experiencing uh, in the states someone actually created a journal of alternative facts um, that we wrote about the other day as a, you know, obviously a response to a comment that one of the White House officials made about, um, no, that wasn't a falsehood, it wasn't a lie, it was an alternative fact, which, you know, we can all laugh about, um, and it is funny, uh, and, and I think it's a good effort to point this out. Uh, on the other hand, there are serious issues here, which, of course, the journal is aware of, the, the, the woman behind the journal is aware of. Um, the, the problem I have in terms of fake news when it comes to science is not necessarily out-and-out -out fakery. Um, that is a problem, and we should root that out, and it's actually a lot of the work that we do at Retraction Watch in terms of the scientific literature. But the real problem in terms of fake news and science, and I think fake news in general, is when there's a tiny kernel of truth to something, or a fact that in the, if it's presented you know, in a context-free way, suggests one thing, that, which is actually the opposite of reality. And certainly in the States, we saw a lot of this during the run-up to the election. And if anything, we've seen more of it since the election. Um, and, and it's even, it's very difficult to keep up with everything that's happening with all of these 
various uh, executive orders and what have you. So I, I think that the you know the issue people have to think about, which they've always had to think about, is how can you, what should you trust, um, and how can you decide whether you can trust something. Um, that's a complicated answer, but there are rubrics and there are ways to think about it. Uh, there's a site called Health News Review that looks at health stories, obviously, that are about interventions and treatments and what have you. Uh, but we all need to just be on guard and, and do what people have said before, which is trust but verify and know what you're looking at. Yeah. And so you brought up the point of uh, there being an information overload almost to the, to the point where things are being produced so quickly um, that we don't stop and take the time to vet it properly. Um, so what are we going to need to do moving forward as journalists, as scientists, um, to make sure that this process is not slowing down per se, but being vetted in, in a way that is proper and valid and reliable? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and not one that I have a, a okay. sort of perfect answer to. I've certainly done a lot of thinking about that. And information overload, you know, it's interesting because people talk about it being a new problem that uh, we have... You know, there are so many papers published. I mean, you look at the number of scientific papers published every year now, it's, you know, somewhere one, one or two million, depending on which index you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't, obviously, nearly as many 50 years ago or certainly 100 years ago, uh, 400 years ago, when there were basically no papers being published. Um, but people have been talking about overload for a century. And so uh, the, the real issue, I think, is that knowledge is expanding so much, and you again, have to go back to trusted sources and decide who is at least more likely to, you know, give, be giving you the right information or at least uh, trustworthy information. I think that if you treat everything as provisional, uh, you will do much better. And I think that that goes for news reports. I think that it even goes for an, ex an executive order from, you know, our new president in the States. Um, uh, this hasn't happened with all of them, but um, a lot of them, within 24 hours, certainly within 48 hours, after their sort of fairly predictable negative response to them, uh, things change very quickly. So if we treat everything like maybe not even the first draft, but the sort of rough sketch or outline of what's true, I, it's, it's not a very satisfying place to be. Uh, we all kind of want the answer, but I think maybe if this, if this episode, if this uh, time in our history has any benefit, which I think remains to be seen, uh, maybe one benefit will be that we uh, all learn to uh, just treat everything as, as uh, provisional. Mm -hmm. So given that level of sort of engagement, I guess, that, that citizens should be expected, um, what would you say is the role of Retraction Watch and even scientists and the public in sort of facilitating that engagement? Because a lot of people seem pretty apathetic towards science and maybe distrustful of it. Yeah, I, I think that they're, you know, in many ways worse than apathetic. I think that there's a, a I don't know if it's growing. I, I haven't done surveys or what have you, but mm -hmm. um, there's clearly a sort of, if not anti-science, at least um, sort of a, an, an us versus them approach when you look, when a lot of people uh, look at science. And that obviously correlates with some other things. But um, I think scientists, and it's not their fault necessarily that this happened. A lot of it is actually... Those of us in the media have to take this on board, but you know, scientists need to stop overselling what they do. Science isn't actually about finding the answer. It's about finding 
is about getting closer to, quote-unquote, the truth. It's about, you know, gathering the very best evidence you can, which should, I think, and I think a lot of people agree, not dictate, but inform policy. Um, but what some scientists think of when they think of uh, scientific communication, or they think of education and what have you, is we're just going to go and lay the facts on people. And this sort of idea that it's because people, uh, they didn't get the right education, they didn't get the right training, they don't know these facts. That's been shown quite conclusively, if you want to talk about the evidence, to not work. So what you need to do is actually have an engagement and talk about the scientific process. And it's okay and probably a good idea to talk about how that scientific process does have these eureka moments and how people get so excited. But it also should talk about how people fail. Uh, and it's not the people who are failing. It's that, you know, experiments don't work out the way you thought they would. Your findings are opposite, or maybe they're just different. Um, if people can understand that, I think that that puts a very different cast on you know, issues like uh, the anti-vaccine movement, um, climate change, uh, people now say skepticism or, or what have you, doubt. Um, all of these issues which, you know, scientists have tried to uh, talk about them as if they're entirely settled, and they basically are. I mean, th there is no evidence for the sort of other point of view. What there is, though, is sort of doubts around the margins, which are legitimate, about, well, this model maybe predicts only with a 98%. Well, you wouldn't, you know, bet on the 2% if you were betting on horses or something like that. So you shouldn't really bet on that if you're talking about climate change. You, you should bet on the 98% probability, um, et cetera. And, and it's always a different uh, calculus for different people. But if scientists really engage in a way that reflects how science works okay. or how we want it to work, um, my hunch, my hope at least, is that things will improve. It's nice to hear some cautious optimism from Dr. Aransky. For sure. But Dr. Aransky also points out that it's not just the media that we have to be cautious about. It's academic researchers, too. In his talk, he aptly referred to scientific publishing as the Wild West. <laughs> yes. Um, the academic fraud he reports on is pretty disturbing. So uh, just to recap, when researchers have completed a study and they have results, reviews, or opinions to share, they write up a report which is sent to a journal in their field, and it's reviewed by their scientific peers. If the quality of their paper is deemed acceptable, then it's published, hence peer review. Exactly. In academia, a lot of pressure is put on researchers and students to publish a lot of scientific findings quickly, preferably with significant groundbreaking results. However, this unrealistic demand often comes at the sacrifice of quality, whether intentionally or accidentally, as Dr. Oransky spoke to during his talk. From plagiarism to fake predatory journals, scientists making up or skewing data, and even peer reviewers stealing other researchers' papers, it really is the Wild West. And it's not getting better. In fact, paper retractions are on the rise. According to latest statistics reported by Retraction Watch, over 684 papers were retracted in 2015. Dr. Oransky also mentioned that journals do not always give transparent reasons for why the papers have been retracted. And most of the time, these discredited papers continue to get cited without any consequences. Yeah. Dr. Oransky gave a lot of interesting tidbits and facts at his talk. Uh, were, were there any that stuck out to you? 
Yes, my favorite fact was when he told us about a researcher named Yoshitaka Fuji, who has over 180 retractions to his name. That is mind-blowing. Who has 180 papers, let alone has them retracted? It's, yeah, wow. It's crazy. What was your favorite part of the talk, Rakeem? That was one of my favorites, along with uh, the fact that men are nine times more likely to be retracted than uh, female researchers, even adjusting for gender differences in the field. Uh, So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I found that part of his talk super interesting too. So here's some more of our conversation with Dr. Aransky. The main problem that I'm looking at, especially from the academic side of things as a grad student, is we're taught to publish as much as we can to that if we get good results that we're probably going to be published in a higher impact journal like Nature or Science. Mm -hmm. And this idea that our work will be recognized not for the value or the design of it, but more so for the results. Um, So how do we manage expectations from all sides as well, from publishers and editors and also you know, media outlets who are who are te- who are drawn towards kind of clickbaity um, mm-hmm. types of science, really. I mean, I would add another uh, group to think about, and that's one that at Retraction Watch we think about a lot, which is uh, tenure committees, uh, tenure and promotion committees, administrators, funding agencies, and different parts of the world. You know, treat these things a little bit differently, but you know, to be fair, I think that Canada and the U.S. And in broad strokes, the the sort of funding schemes are somewhat similar, fairly similar. Um, And that, you know, to your point, is the the problem is that everything relies on uh, papers being published in high-impact factor journals. You want tenure, you want a grant, you want any kind of career advancement, you have to publish in a big journal. And those big journals really only want papers that will be highly cited. And then the media only wants papers that seem, you know, big and important and life-changing and paradigm-shifting, all these terrible sort of really overused words. And, you know, I actually, I I wrote a piece that came out, I guess, a uh, a little more than a year ago now, um, sort of charting that course and, and pointing out or trying to point out that at every stage from idea in someone's head to headline in the, you know, New York Times or, you know, uh, Globe and Mail or something, um, there is the incentive, the incentives are aligned in the wrong way, right? They're aligned to uh, to really sort of have people, maybe not cut corners necessarily, but actually sort of only choose certain kinds of research and then to only choose to publish certain kinds of findings and then for the journalists to only, you know, accept certain kinds, you know, and then for the, the media to only pick it up. So every incentive is, and it, and it gets back to this idea that papers in journal, in high-impact factor journals are the only thing that, things that matter. And so I think if we can somehow figure out a way to break that, uh, and I, I've seen some interesting experiments, uh, I've seen some interesting ideas on that, nothing that has really demonstrated, you know, the, the evidence that you'd want yet, but they're good ideas and they're, and they're worth trying. And um, somehow, though, we need to get away from that. And scientists, I think, often rail against that, uh, justifiably, um, but They've learned in some ways, there's sort of this concept, you know, of learned helplessness. And a lot of scientists, a lot of researchers, you know, have sort of decided, not decided, but, and again, understandably, they've sort of said, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Well, 
actually is because researchers, some of them become administrators. Um, they're the ones who sit on these tenure and promotion committees. And they can push back and, and try and reinforce um, good incentives and, and you know, metrics that make sense, or maybe not metrics at all, actually reading the papers and figuring out whether they're useful uh, and important. So I just think there are, lots of, uh, th there are lots of potential ways to do that we haven't quite figured out yet. As someone who's read a lot of bunk science papers and, and sort of called to question the methods behind it, what would you say then are maybe like, this is probably an unrealistic question, but then the top tips for young researchers like ourselves um, who maybe don't want to fall into this trap of getting into that publication treadmill, um, like what things do you think that we should just apply to our own research in our own lives that can, that can help prevent that in a system that's geared the other way? Right. Well, it's hard. I mean, I think uh, on a very, uh, you know, at a very, very high level, um, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like resist. I mean, there's plenty of things to resist right now, and maybe this wouldn't be the first on the list. But um, I think it is somewhere on the list. And, and to just sort of say, you know what, we're not going to put up with that anymore. I know that's not an easy position to take. But I will tell you that when I look at the attitudes that we tend to see, and I hate to overgeneralize, but... I think it's fair to say that when the attitudes about uh, what should matter in science and what the metrics should be and what sorts of whether we should have open data and things like that um, tend to correlate with how senior or junior you are and how advanced you are in your career and kind of in the way you'd expect which is to say um, I'm in my mid-40s um, and the you know my sort of cohort you know people I went to college with or what have you who are now uh, you know, many of them are getting tenure or are tenured, um, but they're not department chairs yet. They're not deans. Um, many of them, and obviously it's somewhat self-selective, they know me and I know them, um, you know, they champion open science, uh, which is one way, to answer your question, to try and combat this a little bit. Um, it's good for lots and lots of reasons, open science, right? And one of them, though, is to actually be able to check one another's work and find issues if there are any uh, and have that happen more quickly. Uh, preprints, for example, are another way that that, that, that could, could happen. Preprints are, I did a study and I wrote it up and I'm, maybe I'm about to submit it or I already did submit it. It's not peer reviewed yet uh, and I put it online and other people can judge it. Now I don't make a claim, at least if, not if I'm being honest, I don't make a claim that it's peer reviewed. I, I say this is sort of a, a draft um, but that, in that way, we've seen a couple things. One is that, you know, people find issues with preprints and then therefore they can be addressed before they're quote-unquote published and sort of then therefore magically turned into something we should trust, which is another story. Um, and the other thing that, has, that is apparent is that there actually is, and someone did a study of this, um, citing a study for me is always, you know, a little bit ironic, I suppose, but um, someone studied this and it turns out that there actually is very little difference between the preprint version and the published version. I mean, if you exclude some stylistic things that aren't really terribly important, um, there's actually very little difference between preprints and published papers on on MOS, right? Not not any particular paper necessarily. Um, well, that sort of tells you something, which tells you that uh, tells you a number of things. But one is that peer review, probably in many many cases where of research where researchers are willing to put up preprint to post preprints probably isn't actually adding that much value. Um, 
That's a, maybe a controversial statement, um, but it's something to think about. So in the current state where the, there are almost uh, about 600 retractions of papers uh, about yearly? Actually, closer, well, there's at least 650, okay. and there's probably about 800 or 900, actually, but yeah. So uh, a small a small percent of them are, are actual mistakes and errors mm -hmm. that have been made and mm -hmm. are not fraudulent. Do you think our current system is set up um, for this self refereeing as, as, as you stated in, in your recent stat article um, for researchers to come out and say I, I made a mistake and I and hopefully I won't be pub yeah punished yeah. for that I mean it's a good and complex question and the the, um, the the quick answer is no we're really not set up for that uh, on the other hand you've always had the opportunity to write a retraction notice and at least submit it uh, to the journal um, the, the problem has become that retractions have such a stigma that people, even if they include words like this is not an error or what have you, people still sort of, you know, think that maybe you were making it up. Um, but one very interesting thing that uh, people, again, studied, and this has been uh, replicated a few times in different work, if you cite a pa if you retract a paper for uh, fraud, and it's clear in the retraction notice that it's fraud, you actually end up losing citations over time of your other work. Okay, so you get a sort of penalty. If you, if you retract a paper for honest error and that's clear in the notice, you actually don't see that decline. You might even see a bump, although you at least don't see a decline. So it, that means this, this sort of unconscious scientific system is working, um, but the actual retraction system is not necessarily working very well. And um, Dan Finelli, who's done a lot of work in this area, actually got together uh, a bunch of us uh, in December to sort of think about this issue at Stanford, and we'll see what comes of that. But it was a very, I thought, uh, provocative and uh, worthwhile discussion. Our last question is moving forward, given, again, the climate that we're in, is there anything that you plan to do differently with Retraction Watch or in your own work? Um, do you think that there's something that, yeah, needs to be done differently moving forward? Um, so one of the things that we have been working on and that we this sort of soft launch of uh, is a retraction database that will have all the retractions that have ever happened in it. Um, it'll have explanations for all of the retractions that we know about, which will add, we think, a lot of value. And what that allow people to do is to know, because right now it's very difficult to know whether or not a paper's been retracted, whether or not a field has had a lot of retractions, et cetera. So we're very excited about that. And again, we've been working on it for a while, but now that, it's, now that it actually exists, uh, even though it's not complete yet, we're, we're hoping that that changes things. Um, I, I think that one of the things that journalists are learning in general, and I think that it uh, should apply to scientists, uh, you know, or to science journalism as well, um, is that we need to start uh, really being much more conscious of the he said, she said problem. Um, I think journalists have become more and more aware of that issue. But, you know, you see, uh, you know, in the States, you see the New York Times and Washington Post calling out uh, the, the Trump administration when they lie. Um, that used to be something you didn't do. You sort of walked around it, and people who knew knew what you were saying, but, you know, and they sort of started with the falsehoods and kind of language, and now they're, they're actually coming out and saying, you know, he's lying, uh, or one of his uh, sort of designates is lying. Um, we've had PolitiFact. We have sci Science Check, uh, SciCheck, actually, uh, which obviously does this for science. Um, but we, we need to do that. But to be honest, that's not necessarily going to 
solve everything or nothing's going to solve everything. I don't know how much that's going to solve only because the people reading those publications are still sort of, they, they've been, they knew that before. It's nice for them to have it reinforced. But really the issue is trying to understand and, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, but trying to understand, um, you know, how confirmation bias works. Uh, the work of people like Dan Gahan, for example, at Yale, who's thought a lot about this and done a lot of really important work in that. It's not simply, again, if we just convince them of something. You, you really need to engage people in a way that matters to them um, and and think about their priorities and, and what have you. And I don't know how you do that yet. So when I figure that out or if I figure that out or more to the point, if someone else figures it out, I'm not going to be well-placed to do that. Uh, I will be more than happy to adopt whatever evidence-based method there is mm -hmm. of uh, sort of getting close, getting people closer to the truth, but right now we're not there yet. Well, thank you so much. For, sure, uh, sure, my pleasure. The time yeah, to thanks talk for your interest. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Ivan Aransky. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. Aransky's talk was part of a larger academic integrity workshop geared towards McGill graduate students and early researchers to highlight the importance of questioning and discussing ethical issues. We caught up with a few professors and students in attendance to get their perspective on the workshop and why they were there. Here's Dr. Hugh Bennett, professor in the Faculty of Medicine. I've been involved in this for since the beginning in 2010. I think it's very important that people consider the ethics of, of research because one thing is clear after you've our discussion is if you step out of line, this can have ramifications that can ruin your career, both faculty and students, so it's very important to take this subject seriously. Okay. So that's, that's my uh, reason for participating in this. And it's, it's very entertaining to see all sorts of disciplines and more and more disciplines getting involved. So. If, if the students in attendance today could have, or the, the researchers in attendance could have one key takeaway, what would you want them to go home from today believing or applying to their own lives? Don't do it. <laughs> don't plagiarize. I mean, don't plagiarize. Um, I think uh, it's just self-evident, okay? The temptation to do so, to advance your career or to get through your studies, to get your grades up, it's going to hurt you in the end. I'm Andrew Molin. I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine. And uh, I've actually been doing it almost since the beginning, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> and um, I guess uh, what uh, Dr. Bennett has said is, is rings true. I think if we tended looking at ourselves too often in, in that taking responsibility for everything, and if we, if we if we uh, behave in a, in, a, in a bad way by uh, falsifying data or uh, bending the data that we, that we obtain, then we're not only hurting ourselves in the short and long run, but we're hurting everybody else who, who is involved. So, so I think it's a sense of responsibility to, uh, that needs to be cultivated. And, and um, in, in the biomedical sciences, uh, we all understand that it's a tremendous, because of the tremendous pressures, we're, we're, we're often forced to work uh, very, very hard to just to get 
a very small piece of data. So, so uh, this is something that um, you know, in going into science or scientific research, we have to we have to be willing to accept and and take it from there. My name is Lauren Summers. I'm a PhD student in Earth and Planetary Science. And so I came to the Academic Integrity Day as a student facilitator. Um, sort of stood out in my mind was the difference between people who sort of had a how things should operate and then the discrepancy between how things operate in real life. And so some people, you know, stick to those hard and fast rules and other people are sort of acknowledging that um, is practiced by human practitioners and is not, you know, immune to, to a lot of uh, different biases. So I think in your, in your own academic career, just making sure you're always aware of, of the rules and you're always aware of the policies is, is a great thing to do. Um, but I think a takeaway with sort of the larger structural issues and how, um, we were just talking about this, how um, the system is set up to incentivize people to do certain things, so the pressure to publish, or I think those, those systemic pressures are sort of what push people and, and research institutions to, to produce certain results. Or, so I think, that's, I think there's interesting wider systemic questions at play. I'm, I'm Oliver Lazary, I'm a PhD student in epidemiology. And uh, like Lauren, I was also a student facilitator of the group. I learned a lot, and this kind of topic um, is very interesting. There's a lot of work being done on uh, academic integrity and falsification of science in general and how it uh, really skews the knowledge we have at a greater level. And I think that was part of the last part of the discussion was talking about the ramifications it has on society and the direction of science in academia. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's frightening sometimes to see where this could take us. So I think it really is important for institutions to have these kind of workshops and uh, make people aware of what, what could be out there and how to avoid these problems. Thanks for listening to Scientifica Radio today. And of course, a big thank you to Dr. Ivan Oransky for taking the time to talk with us. If you want to learn more about the links we mentioned on our show today, check out our Facebook page, which is Scientifica Radio or our blog at scientificaradio.wordpress. Thanks again, and hope to see you next time.